0: Um, Xi Jinping has made it very clear. He has based his personal legitimacy on annexing Taiwan during his time at the top of the political system, the new era, quote unquote, as he calls it. Um, and so he's he's based he's he's made it very clear. He said we cannot pass this problem. And notice he talks about Taiwan as a problem. Mm. He said we cannot pay, um, pass this problem on from generation to generation. So that sort of sets the time frame. Um, The question is, is this just mere propaganda? Um, Because Chinese leaders in the past have said this, but I think what's different is that in the past, um, Chinese leaders were just going through the motions. Xi Jinping is not, because we know that he is preparing China for war. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border.
1: Welcome to the Border Wars Podcast. We're the number one podcast in all the Americas, the first bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. I say we're the number one podcast not because of me, but because of our guests. And today we have a very, very special guest, someone that I've talked to about getting on the podcast before, but for reasons I will not disclose because they're embarrassing to me. Uh, we were not able to, but we got him here today. Uh, and his Mr. Gordon Chang. Gordon, how you doing? It's great to have you. Great to
0: see you. It's great, Joseph, and thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. And I, know, you know, for those that don't know, I don't know when this podcast is going to actually come out. But Gordon is a man, international man of travel. I think he just came back from the Indo Pacific. right?
0: from Tokyo. It's the first time that <clears throat> that we were outside the U.S. since the. Um, since the pandemic. Well, we, we go to Canada because that's where my wife's- but That's really it. count. Yeah. But that's not really a foreign country, um, but Japan is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was really exciting to go.
1: And that and that was for a, a big conference, right? A CPAC. Uh, it was
0: CPAC Japan, yeah. put on by the Japan Conservative Union. It was on Saturday. It was a fantastic event, Joseph, because- I gotta get out there. You know, it was it, just before it started, they had to add chairs um, wow. and- Almost everybody, maybe everybody, stayed there to the very end. It's that's not awesome. like a U.S., you know, when you have a conference, you know, people drift in, drift out. No, they were really rapt attention. It was fantastic.
1: No, that's great. And I, I got to give a lot of credit. I know this We're going to get into more, uh, you know, policy topics, more specific topics, national security issues. But I got to give a credit to the work that you've done, Gordon, uh, with Matt Schlapp and formerly with Dan Schneider, all the work you guys done at ACU. Because CPAC, I remember going to CPAC 10, 15 years ago. And it wasn't the same CPAC that we that I see today. I mean, the thing has grown tremendously, both here in the U.S., but internationally. I also just came back, from, not, not just, but I came back recently from a CPAC in Mexico, and I thought it was going to be like a couple hundred people, you know, maybe just a small conference room in a hotel. It was over a thousand people wow. who stayed. Like you said, they, they, they did not get tired. I mean, they were there. They were all over the hotel uh, uh, it was it was amazing. and, and to see a, a thousand or plus conservatives in Mexico, which it's not like a country that has a tradition of having conservative political parties, was quite a quite a sight.
0: Yeah, I heard that actually it ended three or four hours late. So for everybody to stay <laughs> was really fantastic.
1: And that's not a lie because I was supposed to speak at a specific hour. And uh, I ended up speaking three hours after I was supposed to speak. But, you know, when you go to CPACs, and this is something that we're well, 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 Gordon's spoken a lot more than I have. But when you go, you always got to be flexible, as they say. Right?
0: Yeah. It's just the schedules change. It's, yeah. it's just, it's crazy. It, is. I mean, it, it is. is. It is. It is.
1: But it's worth it. Uh, I'm glad you're doing them. I'm glad the work that you guys done, because I think really you, Matt, the core team of CPAC, the core team at the ACU have lifted that up quite a bit. But let's jump into this because I want to talk about a lot of things. I know you got a hard stop. So we want to basically we want to jump into the world of Gordon Chang, because I think our audience benefits a lot from hearing you just as many audience do. But begin to, to begin before I get into the, the China specific and topic, I want to, to know a little bit more about you, you know, a little bit more about how you took this journey to basically become one of the top experts in the US and in the world about talking about China's authoritarian, China's totalitarian advances throughout the world. How, how did how did you come to, to that topic?
0: Yeah, this was not a sort of planned out journey. Um Lydia and I went to Shanghai to work in August, 1996. Okay. And I can remember like the first couple of days we got there, Lydia got on the phone and said, mom, China's not communist anymore. Uh, and I agreed with her. Um, and I had clients cause I was practicing law. I had clients who buzz into Shanghai. Y- you're a lawyer by, by profession, by right? profession. Yeah. I was practicing tax and, and, uh, financing, uh, financing law. And, um, You know, I had clients who would come into Shanghai, they'd stay at the Grand Hyatt, which was like one of the most unbelievably visually just striking hotels. And they'd say, China's not communist anymore. Um, But as we lived there, as we worked and traveled around and talked to people and saw things, we saw a very different China. That was a time when, uh, and this was a time when there's a lot of optimism about China, Um, but we sort of understood that there was a very different side to the country mm. and it's become China's become much darker since then. Um, but I decided that, um, I wanted to write a book about how I viewed China. Um, and so, um, I decided, look, uh, I can practice law, but I've done this for a quarter century by then. And I said, well, I want to go and write a book, you know, I you, was in. You high started school. as an author, then really just started kind of- an office for Paul Weiss in, okay. in Shanghai, um, and that's another story. But we won't <laughs> go into that. Um, but I'd always wanted to write a book since high school, and I never had anything to say. <laughs> and so, um, but then while I was there, I said, "I see um, things differently." So I'm going to write this book. Because if I don't write this book, somebody else will, and if somebody else writes this book. I'll just kick myself. So I thought this is the time to do it. You know, my, my daughter um, decided to go to the London Institute, which was tuition like thousand dollars a year. So she wasn't going to, you know, this like $80,000 event uh, a year. And my wife is, um, she doesn't shop that much. So we didn't have any (laughs) happy wife, happy life. (laughs) That's right. And there she is. Um, And um, so uh, this was the opportunity to do it. So I wrote a book um, and I wrote a type of book where you couldn't really practice law after anymore after this writing This is the it. book
1: I'm thinking about.
0: This is The Coming Collapse yeah, of China. Yeah, of course. So I couldn't- That I, was your first
1: book? That was the first book. Wow, talk about hit a home run on your, um, first, your first go around. Well,
0: not everybody would say that, Joseph. So thank they you would, very much. No,
1: I think, okay, let's, let's get us Because I think,
0: Back, It was ahead of its time, right? It was, well, the criticism, which is justifiable criticism, it was too far ahead of its time no. because I wrote in a book that was released in the summer of 2001 yeah. that the Communist Party would fall in 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a little bit ahead of its time. Um, but the arguments you
1: made, in, and, I, and I read the book, the arguments that you made in the book showed you the nature of what China was doing because inevitably- communist regimes don't work, we know this over time, but that was at a period of time where the China was trying to convince the world that it wasn't communist anymore, right? That it turned that, it turned that yes. corner into capital markets, capitalism. Um, and so that goes into a question that actually, I think my audience particularly wants to understand because you know, our audience is mostly in Latin America and, and in Latin America, China's a major player, but the image and the perception that most Latin Americans have of China is as an economic actor. So the number one question that I, I, I get quite a bit in the region is how does a country that is uh, communist have a capitalist economy?
0: Well, maybe in, in the turn of the century that was sort of semi-capitalist, but Xi Jinping, the current leader is taking China back to what was the Mao Zedong state dominated economy. He believes, um, state enterprises, state banks should be the core of the economy. Um, he's been undermining uh, private business, both not only foreign private business, but also domestic private business. So just to give you an example, China has um, some of the most innovative um, fintech com- financial tech companies like uh, Ant Group um, and Tencent, um, which r- runs WeChat Pay. Okay. Now, these are really sophisticated platforms, and Beijing has gone after them. Um, and it is undermining the very uh, what has really been supporting the Chinese economy, which is the private sector. Mm. You know just to put some context so, in these it, are purely private enterprises. These are private companies um, and, and they have uh, they're, they're publicly listed. Um, but the state um, does not want uh, too much power in the private sector. Mm. So what,
1: what levers of control does the state have to pressure? A company like uh, uh, WeChat or, or one of the private okay. companies.
0: Um, just to give you an example, um, Ant Group, um, which uh, runs Alipay. Um, uh, Jack Ma, who founded Alibaba, um, which is the, yes. the the shopping platform. He also founded Ant Group and he really built it up. He gave a sp- Speech at a Shanghai financial conference where he made some mild criticisms of the Chinese banking system. These are criticisms that Chinese bankers and Chinese central bankers, government officials make all the time. Well, Xi Jinping didn't like it, so they basically disappeared him. Um, Ant Group, which was then scheduled to have the largest initial public offering in the history of the world, 36 hours before it was supposed to go public, um, they killed it. And so, um, you know, and Group's still- So they they just just kidnapped the founder. (laughs) They kidnapped the founder, who, by the way, is now living in Japan. Uh, Under asylum or- Jack Ma is there. Not asylum. Um, This is is fascinating. The question is, how did he get out of China? And there's speculation that because Xi Jinping has been screwing up the economy, that there are some people who helped Jack Ma leave. Okay. And- there's a story that uh, you know, people expected Jack Ma to try to leave on a private plane. Um, the story is he actually walked onto a commercial flight um, because they were looking at all the private airports, and so he had obviously some senior officials were protecting him. But he's out. He went. They said to Paris, but mm. now he's living in in uh, Tokyo, according to the. So financial he flew coach. Times. He must have flown coach. <laughs> he a coach know, yeah, baggage class, and. um it it just shows you that uh, there is this concerted attack on on uh, private business. But you know, Ant Group that's a big company. But there's smaller ones. So, for instance, in July, um, a private entrepreneur he was making medical products for the civilian sector. He told me that Communist Party officials came to him and directed him. They didn't ask. They just directed him to start making products for the Chinese military. And he's not the only one that this happened to. There are a lot of private factory owners who've Mm -hmm. been receiving similar calls. And matter of fact, this entrepreneur told me that the Communist Party is now operating factories which were once owned by private owners, but they've abandoned their facilities. They fled China because they didn't want to stick around for Xi Jinping's war. So So
1: These are are mafia tactics, essentially, Uh, intimidation, bullying, uh, basically, you know, going as far as kidnapping and maybe even assassinating some of the private sector leaders to say, listen, Sonam message saying, listen, it's either highway or the highway and the
0: highway is a, a yeah. deadly highway. They haven't assassinated people yet, but you know, that's clearly the next step. Yeah. But the point here is that, um, you know, the communist party cadre has said to, to my friend, um, look, your business is our business. Your money is our money. We let you um, stay here for a little while and make some cash, but now we're calling the tune. And, And that is a totalitarian society. This is where they just come in and take what they want. So you can say it's capitalist, but it's not really because we see the state taking over private business by private business. And also, you know, the state has been taking uh, buying stock of private companies on on public markets. So that's sort of like a renationalization yeah. in a sense. And, and this has been going on for some time, but it's certainly been accelerated under Xi Jinping.
1: So th- this is really Xi Jinping's China. But let me ask you the Let's go to like the Hu Jintao's China. Is th- was their embrace of markets a means to an end? or was it just change in policies and, and, and positioning because uh, the government of China changed and now Xi Jinping's clearly a much more authoritarian, totalitarian leader than,
0: than the rest? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Jiang Zemin, who was, just died by the way, um, or at least they just announced his death. We don't know when he really died. Um, he had this whole notion that uh, the Communist Party had to step back and allow private business to flourish but they said that this was the primary um, stage of socialism, which was basically Mm. capitalism. But the idea was that this was only gonna be temporary. This was while China was able to develop its industry, be able to come stronger, and then after that, they would go to the full communist state. You know, Karl Marx, uh, eventually the state withers away, you've got the proletariat running things, this is paradise. And they actually sort of believe this stuff. and they, they teach it, they indoctrinate people with it. Yeah, it's ludicrous, but that's what they feel. Yeah. And, and so um, whatever space private sector has is really just meant to be temporary. That's under Jiang Zemin, who's considered to be an economic reformer. Sure. Guy's got a lot of blood on his hands, but he was an economic reformer. Um, and we see that, you know, Hu Jintao, um, also they allowed uh, private business, but Xi Jinping right now is cracking down. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know it was a big sign for me when, when that was happening? I remember, I even remember, I was at a, uh, uh, I think it was at the World Bank. It was a conference that China was presenting at, and I remember they would make a point to never use, in terms of symbols, to make a point to never use the dragon and always use the panda, right? Because <laughs> they wanted to show that they're much softer, it's all diplomacy, it's all economic trade and commerce. But one of the things was like, when you see a country turning to like a, a market and becoming much more embrace of capitalism, you start to see better economists. That's usually what happens. Like yeah. people that, you know, studied in, uh, you know, under, you know, the Chicago school from Freeman or maybe the Austrian school from Mises and Hayek. But we didn't see this in China that much. We didn't see great economists coming out of China. Matter of fact, what we saw is a lot of uh, theft that was coming out of China it was stealing intellectual property, stealing ideas, stealing, uh, concepts and then basically wrapping it up in, in a Chinese uh, product and then saying, this is our our new version of capitalism, when really all it is is theft.
0: Yeah, it is. And, you know, it, it's a Marxist economy right now with some space for some private companies. Um, but we don't know how long that's going to last. And especially if, if Xi Jinping takes China off the cliff, you know, and that's possible for him to do because Mao Zedong is his hero. He reveres him. And and Mao did the same thing. You know, both of them, um, they've accumulated power and with their power, they're now um, moving China in absolutely the wrong direction. When Lydia and I went there, um, end of the last century, there was a real opening up and people felt very optimistic about the way things were going because they felt that China would eventually evolve to an open market.
1: And So when, when did you stop going to China? When do you start realizing this is a little more dangerous?
0: The last time that we were in China was November, 2013. Okay. Um, We went to Hong Kong and Macau after that, which are part of the people's Republic, but they are special administrative regions. Um, But we've stopped going to Hong Kong and Macau as well. And the reason is that it is, it's just as dangerous as the mainland. Matter of fact, some people make the argument, and I think they're right, that there is less room for a political debate in Hong Kong than there is in the mainland these days, which shows Well, they shows passed you how that law,
1: right? The, the National Security Law.
0: The yeah. National Security Law was, a, which is a Chinese law, was imposed on Hong Kong, um, which will, basically it's the end of law, yeah. as people have said, and that's right because it gives Beijing the right to do anything it wants, and so therefore Hong Kong is no longer Hong Kong, and uh, we're we're seeing the place suffer. Um, and it will continue to suffer because that's what happens. You know, when, when we were in Hong Kong, because uh, I, I was there for 10 years from 81 to 91, um, everyone was so worried about Shanghai being the financial center of China and the financial center of Asia. And, you know, we said, oh, how can this last uh, in Hong Kong? Well, if you went to Shanghai at that time, people there would say, There's no question Hong Kong is going to remain um, the preeminent financial center here. And the reason is because they've got one thing that we don't have and we will never have. And that's rule of law. You can't have a financial center unless you have impartial courts and laws and stuff like that. Well, that advantage of Hong Kong is now rapidly eroding. Yeah. And so- um, I, the, the,
1: Yeah, the one advantage they had was that they had a legal system that was enforcing property rights, that was basically enforcing patents and things like that, which that that was my big thing with China's quote-unquote turn to capitalism was they had no legal system that was actually enforcing any of the, the, the things that you need to basically have- Uh, a a capitalist market that doesn't become crony capitalism or doesn't become kleptocratic, which is like, Russia had the same problem, right? Russia went after the fall of the Soviet Union, they turned quote unquote capitalist, but it just became a mafia state essentially.
0: And and China is, you know, you can make the argument, and some people do that it is a mafia state. Um, The mafia being the communist party. The communist party Party being the mafia. um, It's, it, it is really, I think when you look at it, it's like China cannot develop. It's developed a lot, but it's developed because money came in from the outside. And yeah. these, are, um, these are the market. Uh, they don't have the ability to sustain themselves by themselves. They need continual infusions of cash. It's a Marxist economy, yeah. and it's, it's going in that direction, which really is a shame because the optimism of the time that we were there is now gone. Um, and China right now has an economy. They they reported like 3.9% year-on-year growth in the third quarter this year. Uh-uh. And, and right now we have seen- um, you, they're, they're inflating that number? That number is an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, well, think I mean, It's falsification. Fly,
1: yeah, we saw that with the COVID statistics, right? They were, they were lying statistics. about that.
0: They, they lied the other way. They said, <laughs> oh, yeah, fewer cases, no deaths, you know, that type of thing. Um,
1: and then they went on lockdowns.
0: <laughs> then they went on lockdown. Um, and that's a whole other story now because they're- unlocking themselves down. But um, we saw, for instance, just a few days ago, China announced its trade numbers for November. Mm -hmm. I'll get a little bit weedy, but I think it demonstrates what we're talking about. And they announced that year on year in November, imports decreased by 8.7%. Imports more important because they showed domestic demand. Mm -hmm. They fell by 10.6% year on year. Now, you cannot have an economy that is growing with such numbers showing contraction. I think the Chinese economy is contracting right now. You know, whatever so, they-
1: so <clears throat> the imports
0: shrunk by 10%? 10.6%. From last uh, year? F- yeah, from November of 2021. Okay. The, the, which which chi- shows
1: that there's a potential problem in consumer spending because uh, consumer they might not spending. have- uh, the capitals or they might not have the, the, the money circulating in the economy to be able to purchase uh, goods and services that are of value.
0: People were locked down. People were pessimistic. Um, I think factories weren't importing mm. raw materials because they just, you know, they couldn't, um, manu- they couldn't make things. They couldn't get them to the ships. So China was locked down. And I think that we're gonna see in reality that China actually has a contracting economy right now. Yeah. We know that um, the property market's plunging, both mm. in sales yeah, the, the, and- the
1: housing, they have a housing crisis. They have a
0: housing crisis. That's, and housing crisis in China is a China crisis because <laughs> housing property is about anywhere, how, however you define it, somewhere between 25 to 30% of gross domestic product is housing and related industries. So you have property sales in the first six months of the year. They're down something like 25, 30%. uh, Similar declines for prices in the 70 biggest cities. And and that really is a crisis because of uh, the wealth of Chinese people, about 70% or so is in tied up in property. Wow, wow. So So, this is a crisis.
1: But let me me turn to something because you mentioned Apple. and, And I've been meaning to ask you this because and in, in the conversations that we've had, I've always been curious because here, you know, people tend to separate domestic issues and international issues. I tend to think it all blends together because we all kind of work in, in, in a world that's really interconnected uh, more so than ever before. So when we talk about big tech, uh, and most people look at that as, you know, uh, maybe there's folks that work in big tech or even leaders of big tech uh, firms that may be uh, ideologically aligned with a certain political philosophy, or they may be following a cultural wokeism, a woke uh, mentality. But I said, oh, sure, that's, that's clearly there. I mean, it's, you know, they're in California, Silicon Valley. So, but I said, how much of this is that and how much of this is that some of these folks are kind of have incentives that align themselves with adversarial nation states, the United States, such as China? I think that came more to the forefront of what happened with Apple, with uh, the protests that were taking place and what was been reported about how they turned off their ability to, to do airdrops and di- different types of things on the phones, because because of what? And uh, it wasn't clear to me. Why did they decide to disable some services? What is Apple's uh, gain from doing something like that uh, when they're an American company? Um, and they may be woke, but that doesn't mean that they're, uh, at least, at least on, on, on the surface, doesn't mean that they should be uh, supporting a communist party in, an, in a foreign country.
0: My guess, I mean, Apple, you know, notoriously doesn't say why it does things. Um, My guess, though, is that they were just forced to by Beijing. Back to that mafia. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, on November 9th, uh, without notice, um, AirDrop was severely limited. That's the app which protesters use because it bypasses the censors. Yeah. But you know, this was not the only time that Apple did something like this. So for instance, they have been taking down VPNs, virtual private networks from their app store. VPNs are used by people to, as they say, jump over the Great Firewall. Mm-hmm. The Great Firewall is basically separates China from the rest of the world on the internet. Um, and you can sort of access the internet outside of China with a virtual private network. So. These VPNs they disappear from the app store, um, so this this has been going on for quite some time, um, and you know I I think that that you've got um, you've got a real problem here, and and this is a sort of like a Tim Cook problem, you know Tim Cook loves to lecture the American people about social justice and other issues, but how come he's not lecturing the Chinese leaders then? Mm. No, but I think I think that
1: that. You know, I guess we're not going to never know the intentions or the motives of private companies and their leaders, because, you know, obviously that's not uh, public or we don't know about that. But I think it goes to the central point of what you've been uh, essentially telling us, which is if you're going to do business in a totalitarian state like China, you're going to play by the rules. That's that's just how it is, right? Uh, I think the Chinese people understand that. That's why they're revolting. But I think the Western companies need to understand that. I mean, if you're going to, if you want to access that great market of, you know, Chinese consumers... Uh, you're going to have to play by the rules of the Communist Party because they control the banking system, they control the communication system, they control the internet, right, they control right. everything. And essentially, if they want to, they could turn it on a dime and kick you out at, at any minute. Uh, and I think that's the big point. Um, let's let's pivot a little bit now because uh, I, I definitely wanted to talk a, a little bit about um, different scenarios that can be playing out. I mean, I think here here in Washington particularly, we're always looking at what can be the next trigger in China. Now, the protests are something happening um, and we could talk a little bit about where you think the approach is going to go. But I think everybody's mind here, at least in the national security space in in D.C., is Taiwan. You know, what what does China have on the time horizon for Taiwan? What are the early warning indicators that we should be looking at to see if any type of aggressive actions will be taken on Taiwan? And I think the conversation here, and I was just, you know, on Capitol Hill yesterday, there was a conference and we spoke a lot about China. And, uh, you know, one of the central points was, and I think, one of the themes of many analysts that I heard was uh, it's not a matter of if anymore, it's a matter of when. Uh, and, and that when, I guess no one has really a, 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 you know, a date on the calendar, but what, what is your take on this on Taiwan? Like is this, is, this uh, is that time horizon closing? Is it becoming shorter in terms of when China's going to take potential military action on it? Or how do you see this?
0: Yeah, I, I see the time horizon shorter. Um, there's a lot here that plays into this. Um, one of them is that, um, Xi Jinping has made it very clear. He has based his personal legitimacy on annexing Taiwan during his time at the top of the political system, the new era, quote unquote, as he calls it. Um and so he's he's based he's he's made it very clear. He said, We cannot pass this problem. And notice he talks about Taiwan as a problem. Mm. He said, We cannot pay um pass this problem on from generation to generation. So that sort of sets the time frame. Um the question is, is this just mere propaganda? Um, because Chinese leaders in the past have said this, but I think what's different is that in the past, um, Chinese leaders were just going through the motions. Xi Jinping is not, because we know that he is preparing China for war. He's doing a number of things. He, at the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party in October, he picked what is, people are calling the War Cabinet. Um, and he is, I mentioned that story about the entrepreneur. Um, it's clearly, it's, it's not just the biggest military buildup in history, um, or, or since second world war, uh, maybe history. Um, but also he's mobilizing the Chinese civilian population for war. Mm. So regardless of what his intent is, he's preparing himself to go to war and that means we need to take him at his word. He talks about war all the time, yeah. Joseph. So we need to take him at his word. Um, we Americans are not. Well, uh, let's let's dive into that because,
1: you know, for those of us that are in the defense space, we, we understand that China has a strategy on warfare that's not conventional in its nature. It's not like the kind of um, World War II scenarios that we saw back in, in, in the 20th century, It's a very much of a hybrid war, an asymmetric war, uh, but it also has conventional aspects of into a high, high grade and high, uh, uh, high tech weapon weaponry. Uh, But it also uses information. It also uses networks. I mean, it's pretty much all encompassing. Talk to us about this unrestricted warfare strategy that China has that was revealed to Americans more than 20 years ago uh, through two colonels that basically decided to give this information to the Defense Intelligence Agency that later became a book and, you know, it's out there now.
0: Yeah, the book is Unrestricted Warfare. It's 1999 by then two Chinese Air Force colonels. And basically it says, you know, you can summarize that book into like one, two sentences that China can do anything, (laughs) And we we use anything. We use anything. Um, For instance, it it talks about, well, there are various types of warfares, and we, China, can do these in any combination. Um, So it doesn't matter what their um, treaty obligations are. They just ignore all that. And so give you an example of unrestricted warfare, uh, or two of them, (sighs) fentanyl. Yeah. China makes most of the world's fentanyl um, and it comes into the United States through basically these days, the undefended Southern border. We we talk about the Chinese fentanyl gangs. That's really misleading. And the reason is that communist party runs a near total surveillance state, maybe a total surveillance state um, by now, you know, they've got some people say they've got 620 million surveillance cameras in China. Yeah. Some people say, oh, no, 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 it's only 520. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it, that number was 262 about three years ago. Yeah. So, you, I mean, it's- <laughs> It reminds they're, me they're,
1: of one time I was in Honduras and you know it used to be called the murder capital of the world because uh, t- uh, San Pedro Sula, one of the cities on the coast, uh, had the highest murder rates per, per 100,000 uh, population. And I remember uh, I had a meeting with the mayor of that country at that time, or that city at that time. And he said, no, what you have to understand, what you have to, they, they inflate those statistics. It's about, it, the, the number was about 110 uh, murders per 100,000 inhabitants. He goes, no, that, that, that's, that's really about 95.
0: <laughs> it's like, okay, it's still pretty high. So- it's still pretty high. So China runs a, a total surveillance state. Um, that means, these fentanyl gangs, they're large, they're well organized, they're international in scope. And so of course, China, the Communist Party knows exactly what these guys are doing and it lets them do it and it gives them diplomatic support. Yeah. And by the way, the fentanyl gangs launder their proceeds through the Chinese state banking, banking system. system. Yeah. So this is this is this is drug warfare. This is unconventional. And the Chinese own TikTok glorifies drug use. So really what they're doing is they're killing Americans. So last year, I mean, people will argue about the number, but it's 77,000, maybe 78,000 Americans who died from overdoses from illegal Chinese fentanyl. So yeah, the, fent-
1: the fentanyl issues, I think, are particularly telling because uh, the writing was on the wall with that for many, many, many years. Uh, and I remember they used to come in through the post office in the US. Remember those, those little packages that yes. were coming from China? They would think they were pharmaceutical and they turned out to be some like fake lab and some fake, the province in China. And uh, they were building addictions through the opioids at first. And then later they started putting more fentanyl in it, which can be deadly because two milligrams of fentanyl could, depending on the person could eventually kill them. But we cracked down on that. At least the DEA got very strict about the the postal mail and that. And then they went to Mexico, uh, the cartels in Mexico. And I remember this, you know, we talk, talk, do a lot of work on Latin America and Mexico. The cartels had no idea what fentanyl was, uh, what the precursor chemicals needed, how to do a pill pressing, the la- the whole thing. It was like they're not pharmacists. They just, yeah. just like, we know, you know, we might know a little agriculture because of cocaine, the coca leaf. We might know a little bit more about distribution, transportation. So they didn't really understand this that well, and I think a lot of that what happened was they tried to essentially build their own pharmaceutical labs. To build the uh, precursor camels, the, the pill breasts, basically, but they would put too, they, they didn't realize how powerful, how potent this synthetic is, and they would put too heavy of a dose and kill pretty much their customer base. Um, where, where, where do you see that? Because in the law enforcement space, what I've heard is the nexus, the potential nexus between the government of China, the Communist Party, the Mexican cartels, and these Chinese uh, fentanyl gangs is uh, mostly with the brokers, uh, the, basically the middlemen uh, that negotiate and facilitate these deals to bring the chemical labs and the chemical co- components to Mexico to start building labs now that they have in Mexico to traffic the fentanyl. Is how ah, you see it or is, there, is a little more to that?
0: Oh, you know, by the way, before we get to that, um, when they were sending the stuff through the mail, they were putting, the, the fentanyl gangs were putting their product into the um, state postal system yeah, yeah yeah so you know this is another sh- another way of saying look this was the Chinese Communist Party behind this um and as you as you point out um we cracked down on that so they found and and it used to stuff used to come through Vancouver yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and 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 we cracked down on that so then they decided to go into Mexico and they established the relationships with the cartels and as you say the cartels they they buy the precursor um from China um they press it into pills now they're putting dye into it to market it to kids the rainbow fentanyl rainbow fentanyl and um there's also um they're now pressing it off as um adderall you mm. know a, a legal prescription drug so people are dying when they they take what they think is a prescription drug um, they're putting it into candy wrappers skittles and things um,
1: yeah that was really concerning in halloween i remember everyone yeah. was talking about you know be very careful with your children because you know they might not be skittles and that it sounds alarming but it's it's out there so you yeah have to it's
0: and, and americans are dying and so china wants this so that's unrestricted warfare the other example of unrestricted warfare is even more horrible in a sense. And that is that, you know, we don't know the origins of COVID-19 okay. 100%. I think it was engineered in a lab, but I don't know that 100%. But I do know something 100%. And that is that Xi Jinping, when this disease got out into Chinese society, deliberately spread it beyond China's borders. So for weeks. And lied about it. And, and this is, yeah, that's the two things. One of them was they lied about it. In December, starting December, 2019, going into January, 2020, and even beyond, they lied about the transmissibility of this disease. They told the world it was not, um, they said, oh, don't worry. And they actually, for instance, on January 3, 2020, the head of their CDC talked to the head of our CDC and the Chinese said, no, this is not contagious. Don't worry about it. You don't have to take precautions. So they lied about it. And then they started locking down their own country in late January, 2020. Um, But at the same time, they were pressuring other countries, especially the United States, to take arrivals from China without travel restrictions and quarantines. Now, they did some other stuff, but those two things show there's a deliberate attempt to spread this disease beyond China's borders. And as we talk, we're basically 1,083,000 3,000 Americans have died from this disease, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. So I look at that, and and, and 6.6 million people around the world outside Mm. China. You look at that and you say, that would have never happened. This is a disease that should never have spread from the central part of China. 6.6 million people outside China, point. One million Americans.
1: Using that with the concept of unrestricted warfare, you said- That's unrestricted warfare. What would be
0: the objective of this? Weaken the United States. Okay. Um, The Communist Party views the United States as its enemy. Now, it's not because of anything that we say or we do or any policy we have. You have an insecure political system, which is now more insecure than normal. It is worries about the inspirational impact that American values and form of governance have on the Chinese people, and they feel that they cannot survive as long as the United States exists. So their intention is to destroy America. No, I no, I, I, I agree
1: with you. Um, it's clear to me that China had looked as a, as, a, as an enemy essentially, and um, as as an obstacle as well. Uh, for, as an for, for, obstacle for, for, and for an
0: enemy, and
1: but, as, as what, what I'll go in an correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this this is kind of how I, I looked at the COVID. I agree with, you know, they, because to me the, the debate about the origins important for investigative purposes, important for, for many reasons. But, you know, if we can't get to that, cause it's gonna be hard to do it without being able to go to China. And obviously China is not, not gonna allow uh, anyone that they don't trust to be able to go in there. But uh, irregardless of whether, uh, how it started, they, they definitely deceived the world about how it spread. And, and that was very damaging to the economies, mostly of most countries. I always use the example of Latin America the region I look at the most because Latin America is arguably the hardest hit economically by, by the pandemic because they you know, were the last region to get infected physically by the virus, but they heard about the virus like everybody else did right at the beginning. So what hit Latin America before the actual virus did was the fear. Uh, so Latin Americans were deadly afraid of this yeah. virus. Many countries locked down before they even had five infections in the countries and many of them stayed locked down for months, sometimes even close to a year or more which impacted their economies. So I always looked at it as, if this, you know, within the concept of unrestricted warfare, the end state of this would be, you know, if you want to be economically powerful, right? You have two ways to do that, essentially. You can either grow or you can make sure everyone else suppresses, goes down. Yeah. And that's what the effect of this COVID was because, I mean, what global GDPs, I think dropped seven, 8%. In Latin America, it dropped nine to 10%. I mean, we, you it basically evaporated 10 years of economic growth in many countries around the world in one year uh, because of COVID. And all of a sudden China, which was already doing poorly economically and is still doing poorly today, but had signs of that pre-COVID, right? With the trade war, they had signs of them be going in an economic downturn. So you know what? Well, everyone will go down with with us. And so, you know, it's hard, but I could see it from that lens. Is that that tracking in terms of how you're looking at this as well?
0: The Chinese communists have borrowed a Soviet concept called comprehensive national power. Mm. And CNP is, is called, you know, ranks the power of countries. And China, of course, wants to be number one. I have no problem with a country wanting to be number one. Every country should want to be number one. But there's two ways to get it, and you just described it. You strengthen yourself, that's fine. Or you weaken everybody else, and that's not fine. And that's what China did with COVID-19. They figured, we got hit, we are going to hit everybody else. And that's exactly what they did. So that's warfare. And that's more than a million Americans have been killed. And we should be looking at at, at that in the same lens that the communist Chinese do. And yeah. we should be saying, yeah, you've murdered 1.1 million Americans. That's,
1: you know, that, that's kind of amazing to me that no one's holding their feet to the fire on this. Like, they they... they I think everyone, can, you know, regardless of political orientation, can agree that they deceive people. I mean, that was the this information was uh, not only was it aggressive, it was outlandish on the claims that they were making. I remember right. Chinese diplomats were, that were supposed to be very diplomatic were basically putting conspiracy theories all over the internet and uh, on social media, uh, accusing the United States that this is created by the United States, that there's some type of like big, you know, big conspiracy for the United States to basically go attack China and blame China. So I feel like in that sense, we all kind of understand that. And and in some countries, obviously, have a hard time saying it, but they, I think they understand it. But no one's actually doing anything about that. No one's actually doing anything about it to actually have China at least, you know, pay some type of consequence, whether it's in the international community, whether it's through economics or... But I do think markets are starting to understand it. Markets are starting to understand because they're like, you know, okay, put all the politics aside. We need to take our manufacturing out of China because that's not secure. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and, and talk to us a little about that because you've seen probably many, many companies leaving China. Uh, um, is that
0: uh, still happening? Is that accelerating? Is that is, is that it, permanent? That is accelerating. And you know, one of the areas that are benefiting is the border areas in Mexico yeah. because they've got uh-huh. these special companies. Mm-hmm. And so um, there is this migration across the Pacific. You know, on your earlier points about no one's holding their feet to the fire, Nobody's imposing costs on China for doing this. And the reason is we've got to impose those costs. And the reason is Xi Jinping can look out and say, I just killed 1.1 million Americans and I have not suffered anything. And this is important because the Chinese uh, military, they talk in public about the new type of biological warfare of quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks. In other words, pathogens that will leave the Chinese immune but kill everybody else, and these guys are working on it. Um, which means that the next disease from China could be a civilization killer, yeah. and so we need to impose those costs to establish deterrence. So Xi Jinping will say, "I can't spread the next disease." Right now, he's he's free to do that, and so we have got to rethink our relations with China. But you know, one one uh, thing that's come out of this is that. Um, in the early months of the pandemic, specifically January 2020, China actually threatened to cut off the uh, export of uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients to the United States. They said that they were gonna throw us into a, quote, mighty sea of coronavirus. That illustrated and very clear the maliciousness and the viciousness of the Chinese system. One thing that's happened is that COVID 19 has actually started or accelerated deglobalization. Yeah. And um, because what it did was it lessened the connectivity of countries, of companies, and of people. That's from Larry Fink. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And so what we have, so China's going to reap this um, on the back end because they are the primary beneficiaries of globalization. They will be the primary victims of deglobalization. And we do see these factories um, leaving China, including Apple. Apple right now, because of problems there, they've been getting their iPad production, part of it, into Vietnam. They now realize that they've got to move even more iPhone production in India. They got an iPhone factory in India, but that's for the Indian market. They're now thinking we must make an India they're, they're, for indian yeah. markets. Um and they're right. It would be
1: wise. It would be wise. And not having this backlog that we have on iPhones yeah, right now. Yeah, you're your <laughs> right. I would have an iPhone. I'm would have. You would i have I'm conscious of the time, but I want to ask you one, one quick. You know where I thought you were going to go with the unrestricted warfare, you said too, COVID, obviously. But I thought you were going to go with TikTok. Because to me, that's an interesting, and actually, in, you know, in the very hyper-partisan environment that we live in today, actually on TikTok, it's about a bipartisan issue because it isn't just the Trump administration. The Biden administration yeah. has continued uh, to at least uh, officials from the Biden administration have continued to put pressure to look at ways to stop TikTok from essentially doing what's beyond social media, because the app itself collects data and it collects data on users. It collects data on citizens. And unfortunately, it can collect data on governments and militaries because the way geo-tracking works nowadays, if you're using your TikTok, if you, your app near military installations, it can track movements. Um, talk to us about TikTok, because I think that's something that many people don't see it. I don't have TikTok on my phone. I'm not no. letting anyone have TikTok that's around me on their phone. Because I believe for the minute you install your app, the app on your phone, it's almost like your, your phone gets sucked into a, a, an information cloud. So yeah. tell us about that.
0: Two, two um, national security threats on TikTok. And TikTok is part of unrestricted warfare. Mm-hmm. So first of all, as you say, they, they take this information, they can use it for blackmail purposes, but they also feed it into their artificial intelligence systems in China. And they promise not to do this, They said, you know, we don't send it over to China. Well, yes, they do. Uh, And we know this um, from people who work at TikTok have told us this. So they're lying through their teeth. But the other thing is the algorithm. um, Because China uses the algorithm to propagate its narratives. So, for instance, this year on TikTok, there's a lot of Russian disinformation about the Ukraine war. As I mentioned before, or I think I mentioned that they glorify drug use. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, they actually were fomenting violence on American streets through TikTok. Radio Free Asia reports that an intelligence unit of the People's Liberation Army based themselves in the now closed Houston consulate, and they used artificial intelligence and big data to identify Americans likely to participate in violent protests. And then they sent them TikTok videos on how to riot. You know what's crazy about also, and. I'm gonna see if I can articulate
1: this because this is really just you know, things that are floating in my mind about the, the weaponization of TikTok. Because the algorithm's crazy. I don't have it right. I don't see. But I have friends that showed me it. Like things go viral much easier, much faster on TikTok than they do on any other social media app, which gives them a natural competitive advantage in the market right. of social media. But what I've noticed is that it also like reduces your attention span because the the, the viral nature of the videos are shorter. They're quicker. They're more like uh, outlandish in terms of like whatever kind of video you're producing and the movements are bigger, the colors are brighter. And what I've noticed is almost like taking people's like the, the <coughs> attention orders and reducing it to like ADD on steroids where right? everyone like they can't do anything because they have to, it, that, I don't know how to describe it. It's maybe like a, like a cognitive uh, attack a neural, neuro, uh, f- neuro neurophysical, neurological, like to, to basically change your ability to comprehend, receive, interpret information to where you no longer have this this the ability to sustain attention over complex issues, which makes you essentially less uh, able to understand a complex challenge like China. Is is am I going too far with this? Because I I'm starting to think like is that another way that TikTok can actually hurt the fabric of Uh, American society or even just uh, global society because yeah I I think
0: so the the thing about TikTok you know you you put your finger on it and that it is it is the most addictive um, because it has perhaps the most sophisticated sophisticated artificial intelligence it knows what you like it knows what you don't like and it is able to deliver content that you crave yeah and so and that's um,
1: all all social media I mean I think was that the social network no was it Social Dilemma that documentary on Netflix kind of pretty much Revealed this, you know, the algorithm, all the algorithms uh, are for repeat use and sustained use on their app. That's it makes sense. It's business. Uh, but the TikTok one, I feel like it's like, I, I describe it as, as, as a social media on steroids. Because it, it's just crazy how fast that app can actually get all the preferences and the your decisions that you make on the app. And then to produce it in a way that basically makes you think that you're having much more
0: influence than maybe
1: you really do if you're on another
0: app. Yeah, the... In this thing about the algorithm, uh, the Trump administration in its last months tried to force a sale. TikTok is owned by ByteDance, Byte Dance. which is a private company in China. But it's really controlled by the Communist Party because the Communist Party controls every company that it wants to. And um, they were able to sort of get uh, ByteDance to agree to sell TikTok. Mm. But the sale eventually cratered over the algorithm. Because the Trump administration understood the power of the algorithm, and so they wanted to control it. But China, China was willing to give up ownership, but they weren't willing to give up the algorithm. That's interesting. Which is that's essentially this is the reason why they wanted it. And so, yeah, you know, because
1: I think you know, it's it's you know, we know China's one of their abilities that they have to maintain a totalitarian state is social control. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's they they control their population. And TikTok may be in some ways kind of a beta testing of how you control foreign populations uh, yeah. through, through the algorithm and through things. Well, Gorda, I know you I know you got to run, uh, so I didn't want to take up too much of your time. But I'll, we'll end with this last question because I have like a, a list of things that we could talk about. But I'll list a question because you know, all of you know we, Latin America is a big part of the, the work that we do at the center. And uh, China is a big player in Latin America, if you were to look into the camera and you were to give Latin Americans your best advice on how to deal with China, because I've always said, and this is my criticism to the United States, is that it's not good enough for the United States to go chastise Latin America and say don't do business with China because right. they under, they understand China in terms of, the, like, they don't prefer China than the United States. They, they understand that the United States is a more natural partner. It's a closer partner. It's a more democratic partner. And I'm not talking about the Venezuelas of Latin America because those countries right. are much, much different with Maduro and everything. But I'm talking about... The, the Chiles, the Colombias, you know, they may be under governments that are a little bit more hostile or a little more uh, a socialist now, but uh, the societies are, are not. And what would be your message to them in terms of how, I would say, what would be your message to them not on China, but then also on how America should do more to engage with our southern neighbors?
0: Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, I think that all countries, the United States, countries in Latin America, Caribbean, Should just demand reciprocity from China. Mm. So, just we were talking about TikTok. Um, TikTok does not allow American apps in China. So, (laughs) why do we allow Chinese apps in our country? So, demand reciprocity Um, in the United States. um, You know, we have we're we're very involved in in all over the world, except some places which are really critical, like a really close hemisphere, (laughs) really close. I mean. Uh, and, and this is just wrong. I mean, Americans should place priority on, um, those there's two regions where we just totally ignore, which are our neighbors. One of them is Latin American Caribbean and the other is the Pacific. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and we just sort of. People forget that the other side of the Pacific is the Americas, right? right. It doesn't just end at Hawaii. Like you got to go all the way. And actually just to, just to make a point on that. You know, we didn't talk about Taiwan, and we'll probably have you back another time we'll talk yeah. all about Taiwan because one of, I've said, the early warning indicators that China, experts or China observers should look at is how the port infrastructure is developing on the Pacific side of Latin America. Because once, you know, you know, the, the, the theory of once Taiwan falls, the, the chain of islands fall and they right. get access to the Sea and then they're in the Pacific, well, they're going to need a destination. They're going to need a place to port once they get to the other side. So there's 40 infrastructure projects that China has in Latin America by state-owned enterprises. And of those 40 infrastructure projects, some of them are huge mega ports, such as the one in Peru, such as the one in Mexico, that are ostensibly there to hold uh, cargo, but can also hold aircraft carriers because that, right. that's the way that the, the system works. So they're,
0: they're too big for commercial purposes. You know, you have, um, i just give you one example that I, that I always think about. In Freeport in the Bahamas, China is building a $3.4 billion container port. And the idea was, well, with the expansion of the Panama Canal, we need container ports in the region. Maybe, but I don't think so. <laughs> Can't bring I, enough iPhones to the Bahamas for that. i take yeah. that much. So what's going to happen will be, this is totally uneconomic, um, as as is another container port uh, or another port in the Bahamas in the Baco Islands. Um, And so China's, you know, it's going to go belly up. And and Beijing is going to repossess it, and it's going to become a Chinese military base, which is 87 miles east of Palm Beach. Yeah, yep, yeah,
1: yep. Yeah. That what that's the direction we're going. We're going to end with that note, Gordon. I could talk to you for hours. It's always a pleasure. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you. I feel like
0: it's a privilege for me, and I'd love to do this again.
1: Awesome. We'll have Gordon on again. Let's, let's do this. If you give me a thousand likes on this video, because I have a list of topics that I didn't even touch on. If you give us a thousand likes on this video. I will find a way to get Gordon to come either here in DC or maybe we'll go. We see each other in Dallas and Florida. So maybe we'll see each other in another state, but we'll have Gordon again on the podcast. So if you're new to the podcast, be sure to like this video. Be sure to share it with your friends, and if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, be sure to subscribe uh, to the Border Wars podcast. The Center for Secure Free Society. Gordon has—he, he, you know—Gordon says he's not that good at social media, but I think he's very good at social media because I, he always pops up on my feed. So, and I think it's mainly Twitter. You want,
0: you want to give us your uh, Twitter handle? It's Gordon G Chang. G O R D O N G C H A N G.
1: Awesome. So follow everybody. If I want to put the, the the Gordon's Twitter handle and a link to some of his most recent articles in the show description notes. Uh, Be sure to follow Gordon Chang. If you want to learn about China, as you can tell, uh, there's a wealth of knowledge and be sure to subscribe to Border War Podcast and we'll see you at the next episode.
0: Subscribe to the Border Wars Podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.